Well, good day to you. This is a bit of an unusual uh, recording for me. Uh, I am going through an adult baptism class with a, a series of folks here at the church, and normally I record those classes live uh, while I'm doing them, but uh, we had a class on Sunday, and for some reason my hard drive wasn't working correctly, so it didn't record correctly. Um, so I'd like to record it as a class because you do get a little bit of feedback, and uh, it's just not... I don't know, it's just not as stiff, I guess, um, and there's certainly the convenience of it. But as it didn't work, I needed to re-record it, which I'm doing in the little studio at our church here, and I'm um, going to go through basically the the creed, the, the Apostles' Creed, uh, as part of Martin Luther's small catechism. And uh, without other folks to interact with, it might be a little bit faster, but um, hopefully it will be a benefit to you. Um, I appreciate that a few folks have downloaded it off the podcast uh, feed. Hopefully all these kind of getting back to basics um, <clears throat> you know, are of benefit to, uh, to folks. So in the small catechism really is something that you can go through over and over again. It just, it just never gets old. Uh, the brilliance of Luther is really just shines forth. So, so let, let's look at this. So this is, again, um, in, you know, in this series, basically what we've done, we started with looking at worldview. We started looking at a very, very brief overview of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We did a kind of in-depth look at Galatians and uh, so that we would really understand what the gospel is and what the Christian's relationship to the law is. And uh, then we were looking now through the small catechism, which is kind of Luther's basics of what every Christian ought to know. Uh, so we looked at the Ten Commandments uh, last time, and, and so this time we're looking at the Apostles' Creed. Next time we'll look at the Lord's Prayer. But Luther says, he begins this section by saying, as the head of the family should teach it in a simple way to his household. And again, uh, just a reminder that this really is for heads of household. So fathers are to teach this to their children. It's not just the pastor's responsibility. But I begin with my own little introduction. I say, the creeds have been abandoned by many Christians in favor of a pithy deeds, not creeds sloganism. But the creed should not be pitted against the Bible, but rather seen as a concise summary of the Bible's teachings. The creed is understood best as a boundary that defines Christianity both historically and biblically. To be a Christian is to believe these things. To deny any one of them is to deny the fullness of Christianity. Therefore, the creed is confessed again and again as a reminder of what we believe and to what we abound our lives. So, um, you've probably heard other Christians say that, you know, they, they have no deeds or no deeds but Christ or deeds not creeds. Um, <clears throat> Did I say no deeds but Christ? No creeds but Christ. But, um, of course, the problem with, with that is that those are themselves creeds. And, in fact, everyone is creedal. Everyone has a creed, whether or not it's the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed. Uh, everyone has a, a, a creed. When uh, Joel Osteen holds up the Bible at the beginning of his sermons and he says, this is my Bible, it says what I says I am, etc., that's a creed. And so there, you have to choose really which creed you're going to live by because everyone lives by a creed. The Apostles' Creed and the other creeds were sort of hashed out out of necessity uh, to defend the church against false teaching. So the Athanasian Creed, for example, is explicitly Trinitarian to explain uh, how it is that we believe in one God who is also three persons, how the persons are not confused, uh, and yet they share an essence, the essence of Yahweh, the essence of the God revealed in the scriptures. And uh, the Apostles' Creed is certainly the shortest of the creeds, but it says clearly what it is Christians believe about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So the first article is, as Luther says, of creation. Uh, the creed is Trinitarian, so it has three articles, the first relating to the Father, the second to the Son, the third to the Holy Spirit. So the first is of creation. What does the Father do? He is creator of all that is. And it simply says, the creed that is, simply says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then Luther asks, what does this mean? The answer, I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ear, and all my limbs, my reason and all my senses, and still preserves them, in addition thereto, clothing and shoes, meat and drink, house and homestead, wife and children, fields, cattle, and all my goods, that he may provide me richly and daily with all that I need to support this body and life, protects me from all danger, and guards me and preserves me from all evil, and all this out of pure fatherly divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me, for all which I owe it to him to thank, praise, serve, and obey him. This is most certainly true. And of course, that last line is a bit of a uh, uh, kind of an inside joke, really, um, among Lutherans. This is most certainly true. Lutherans love to uh, throw that that phrase around. But it's uh, really an amen, right? Luther is saying this is absolutely the, the truth. This is what this section of the creed tells us. And so, it is a reminder, really then, this is my own little commentary, that, that everything that we have is, in truth, God's. Everything we have is, is God's. We're mere stewards of what God has given us. God is the author of creation, is the author of all life. Everything that we see, every, uh, every automobile, every dollar, every tree, every, uh, everything that we can see with our eyes is all God's. And uh, so not only did God at one time create the universe, but uh, as Luther points out, God is still involved in his creation. He, he gives us all that we need, and I love Luther's list. It's, it's pretty comprehensive. Clothing and shoes, meat and drink, house and homestead, wife and children, all these things are, are given to us by God. And of course, how easy is it for us to believe that, you know, they, they're ours, that we worked for them, that we earned it, uh, that, that these things are, are ours, that... Uh, you know, it's it's it, we have it the exact opposite of what it really is. It, it's ours, and we you know kind of give God honorable mention for it, but it that's not true. It's God's, and we're stewards of it. Notice too that the kind of sine qua non, that is the the bare essential of what Christians believe about creation, is that God is the creator, not that the universe necessarily is old or young. And yes, I realize that's extremely controversial in some Christian circles, and I certainly don't mean to to cause offense, but. Um, and, I, and, and also, I, I should say that there are things beyond the creed uh, that, that are important in Christian doctrine and that are important in Christian life. I, we, you know, we don't want to be a minimalist uh, about, uh, about what we believe. On the other hand, we need to figure out what are things of primary concern and what are things of secondary concern, especially when we, when we talk about unity or fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I think what the creed wants to put forth are those things that are of primary concern. And a little bit later, we're going to talk about then, well, then why are Christians still divided, especially Christians that can still recite this creed, you know, say Roman Catholics and Protestants. If they can both say the Apostles' Creed, there has to be something within the creed itself that points to their separation. And uh, I will talk about that a little bit later. Um, but I, the creed itself doesn't answer the question of whether it's a young earth or an old earth. Now, it could be argued that the authors of the creed assumed a young earth, or perhaps some people would argue they assumed not. Uh, I, I don't know that 
the authors of the Creed would have known how to speak about an old earth in the way that we do today. Um, and honestly, it's not a topic I've studied a lot, so I don't uh, have really strong feelings one way or another. Some of my best friends are young earthers, what can I say? Um, and it doesn't say as well whether evolution played a role in biological diversity. Now that, I think, is much, much further afield from the minds of the authors of the Creed. Um, and and I do think that there are very significant problems with evolution. I think more problems than with older young Earth because I think it's possible to believe in an old Earth without also believing in evolution. That said, um, one of the benefits of the Creed, to the extent that there are benefits of holding to this Creed as opposed to others, because again, we all have one, is that th that particular issue does not have to be a boundary of fellowship because what the early church seems to have said, and again, the creed is not at the level of the Bible, I understand that, but what the early church seems to have said um, is that what's primarily under un, of importance is that we believe in God the Father Almighty. He is the creator of heaven and earth. We affirm the doctrine of creation by God and by no other being, by no other person. Every Christian is a creationist. They ought to be a creationist. And that's not a title that we should go away from, and it's right there in the creed, because God is the creator of all that is. So I think part of the power of the creed is that we can rely on the most basic truths and be a fulfilled Christian, and we can leave uh, many of those arguments that divide that church, uh, I don't want to say to others, but maybe to a, a sphere of secondary importance. That, that might be the way that I would put that. So again, I'm not saying it's not an important issue. I'm saying that in the creed, if the creed is the, demonstrates what is of primary concern— in the creed, we, are, we have the doctrine of creation, but we don't necessarily have every detail of that creation, and we would do well to remember that as we dialogue and engage with other Christians. Certainly in talking to a non-believer, um, you know, a naturalist, for example, cannot be a Christian because they would not affirm the doctrine of creation. So that would be a dividing line there. Um, so let, let's move on then to the second article, which is of redemption. And second article means we're going to talk about the second person of the Trinity, the Son. So let's read what the Apostles' Creed has to say about the Son. And in Jesus Christ, that is, we believe, I believe, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead, or this translation says, the quick and the dead. Again, let's hear immediately what Luther has to say about this. He asks the question, what does this mean? And here's the answer. I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, purchased and won uh, me from all sins, or delivered me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood, and with his innocent suffering and death, in order that I may be wholly his own, and live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, even as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. So, um, what does Luther highlight mostly when he talks about the events described in the Apostles' Creed, the, the, the bare things we must believe about Jesus Christ. Well, um, he talks about his redemption. He talks about his salvation. How did Jesus save him? How did Jesus save 
those who would come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, it's not by gold or silver, but through his precious blood, through his innocent suffering and death. And what the Apostles' Creed highlights are both historical events, um, but with a supernatural worldview relating to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Well, so if you look at this section of the Creed, I mean, it does look at a lot of historical events. Uh, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, for example. That is an act in history. That is a, a, an act that took place in time among people. And uh, his being born of the Virgin Mary, again, a historical act. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, the, arguably the most notorious man in all of history, uh, the only uh, man other than Christ here, named in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but these are these are these are ways to situate the work of God within human history. So these are historical claims. They can be falsified. They can be verified. Again, he was crucified. He he was he died. He he was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the set from the dead. These are historical claims. They're measured out in time. Again, they're falsifiable. They're verifiable. That said, these are supernatural claims as well. These are unusual events, if you will. They're miraculous events. They're not to be repeated events. These are singular events that happen in the life of Jesus Christ. They, and, and, and the history serves a bigger purpose. It's not just, you know, reading a, a, an account of a battle or something like that. The bigger purpose is to tell the story of God's interaction in the world, how God has saved human beings from certain death, from their bondage to sin, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so we look at the historical events. The Apostles' Creed gives us sort of the bare bones historical events about Jesus, the things that every Christian must believe if they are to have faith in Jesus Christ, And uh, but, it, but it does so with a supernatural worldview. It has to, because none of these things make sense from a purely historical point of view. Um, but let, let's take a quick step back and look at, look at the, the, the Creed again. So, one thing that's important for Christians to remember is that when we talk about the Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God, Jesus, uh, or, or the, let me say, the Son did not come into existence at a point in time. The Son, like the Father and the Spirit, existed for all of eternity, all of e- eternity past and all of eternity future. I think a lot of Christians believe when we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what they really think is that the Son came into being when he became incarnate in the Virgin Mary. So you had the Father, he's kind of the God of the Old Testament, and then the Son comes into being, so what was once one is now two, and then the Spirit comes on Pentecost, so what was once two is now three. People kind of think because the Trinity is revealed historically that also, you know, you have sort of existence historically. I don't think people have necessarily thought that through and come to that point of view, unless maybe you're a oneness Pentecostal, you're a modalist or something like that. But generally, I think what happens is that um, people just sort of intuit it that, you know, they intuit it that way. They don't think of the Father, Son, and Spirit as always existing eternally, eternally in the past. What we have in Jesus Christ, then, is not that the Son comes into existence at a certain point in time, but that he becomes incarnate at a certain point in time. So there is a, a point in time when the Son was incarnate, and before that, he was not. And of course, what we celebrate at Christmas is really not the birth of Christ, but the incarnation of God, the, the the time when God became flesh, the time when God came to dwell among us as the Son becomes incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then w- what else happens? Well, of course, he, he grows and he teaches and he calls disciples and he lives perfectly obedient to the law. And as the, as the uh, creed would say, he truly suffered under Pontius Pilate. 
Um, he was crucified. That was the mode of his death. The scriptures attest to this. Um, he, he, he really did die. So it's important the creed says that he died because there are theories that maybe he wasn't dead and he pushed his way out of the tomb. No. Uh, he really was buried. He was placed in the tomb. We know where the tomb was so that later when the, the women go back to the tomb on what we would call Easter morning and they see that the body's not there, that's of historical significance because it's not like they're at the, you know, knocking on the wrong door. <laughs> you know, they, they knew where he was buried. They knew what tomb he was at and they find that Jesus is not there. Um, and then, of course, the other doctrines that flow from there, he ascends to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, um, and uh, he will judge, again, the, the, the living and the dead. Um, in other words, we live in what's called the time between the times, right? So Christ has come once, and Christ will come again. We're living in between that time of his coming again. And when he does come again, every human being who has ever, uh, who has ever lived will be judged, uh, either to be uh, blessed and and live forever in the presence of God, at peace with God, at peace with their Maker, or separated from God and at enmity with God, and never able to be reconciled to their own Maker. So, um, so let me see. I had some other notes about that. Let me see if there's anything else to say. Um, basically, what I what I wanted to point out is that there's historical and theological impact here. Uh, Jesus did exist in a specific time and place. And to choose not to believe that is certainly your right, but it does pit you against history. And these are, again, the, the bare facts of history. I, I think Christians should also believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, the authoritative Word of God, the infallible Word of God. Uh, so it's not as though you could believe these bare facts of the Apostles' Creed and then deny the rest of the facts you know that are revealed in the Bible. We know what we know in the Apostles' Creed through the witness of the Scripture. So you would never want to pit these things against each other. So certainly we're not saying that, but we are saying that these bare essential facts of the life and death and resurrection and ascension um, and the nature, of course, of Jesus Christ are, are present in the Creed, and um, and you must believe these things to, to be a Christian. So um, this is the point in time where if our... Um, teaching the class in person, I'd say, does anyone have any questions about that? And something else might might come to mind. But uh, but I would say primary importance to know is that, first of all, the Son has always existed, um, and he's always been eternally begotten by the Father, and those are sort of mysterious words that we're not going to spend time on now. But uh, the point is that the Son has always existed, but he did become incarnate at a point in time in history. And yet we don't have a bare historical understanding of, you know, who Jesus is, as though he were any other figure in history. Uh, there's no doubt that his life and his actions and deeds were miraculous, and they reflect a supernatural worldview. You can't come to terms with the historical events without a supernatural worldview. You've got to have both. And I think we see that here in the second article of the Creed. Now we get to the, the third article, then, uh, of sanctification. And uh, what a sanctification. Let's stop there. Um, the word Sancta or sanctus, um, it, it, it means holy. And to be sanctified then means to grow in holiness. So the Christian, uh, how does this Christian grow in holiness? Well, it's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. So now we get to the third person of the, of the Trinity, therefore the third article of the Creed. Um, the work of the Spirit is to is to grow us in holiness. It is the work of the Spirit to do this. It is not our own work. 
Um, we can't set about it and then see it happen. And I always say that sanctification sort of happens, you know, when we're not really looking, when we're not paying attention. So that years go by, and we should be able to look back on our life, and we should, uh, you know, be able to say, "Wow, you know, I used to want to do this thing, and now I don't want it to, to to do it anymore." When did that change? And you won't really know a time per se when it changed. It's just that over time, your desires change, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. In your life, now the Holy Spirit contains, or this uh, creed, or this uh, article of the creed rather, contains sort of pithy statements that each are full of uh, full of information. But let, let's go ahead and read through that article of the creed and then Luther's commentary on it. I believe in the Holy Ghost, one Holy Catholic Church, or Christian Church, some people would say, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So Luther asks, what does this mean? The answer, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith, even as he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth, and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith, in which Christian church he forgives daily and richly all sins to me and all believers, and at the last day will raise up me and all the dead, and will give to me and to all believers in Christ everlasting life. This is most certainly true. Um, this is one of the more famous you know, parts of the small catechism for sure, because uh, Lutherans talk about this a lot, especially when we get into uh, debates about justification, or um, even though this is the section on sanctification, but... Um, when you look at the really our relationship before God and our ability before God, you know Luther spells it out quite simply. I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so that is a really countercultural, you know, claim. Um, even a lot of Christians would probably disagree with that statement. If you asked a lot of Christians to say on the street, if you will, um, hey, you know, you know, do you believe in in Jesus Christ on your own? I think probably ninety percent of Christians will say, yeah, yeah, of course I do. That's not what Luther says. Luther says I cannot on my own and by my reason or strength, because again we're sinful beings in rebellion against God. Um, our wills are are not free in this regard. Um, our wills are captive to our sin when it comes to the things of God. So he says I can't by my own reason or strength believe. And Jesus Christ, my Lord, or or come to Him, but but the Holy Ghost, and this is the work of the Spirit, right? The Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel. He enlightened me with His gifts. He sanctified me and kept me in the true faith. And even as He gathers, call, I'm sorry, calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian Church on earth. Let me just stop there because, you know, that's a really pithy and good and shorthand way to know, like, what does the Holy Spirit do? What is his economic role, if you will, within the Godhead, within the Trinity? And here it's really laid out very simply. He does four things. He calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies. Okay? So that is what the Spirit does. Those are the four things. If, if you are a Christian, you are called to be a Christian. You are called into the church with a call that you, dare I say, could not resist uh, by the Holy Spirit. So you are called he gathers the people of God in the church visible and in the church invisible, if those are distinctions you're interested in making. But certainly, um, part of what we are called to do as Christians is to worship God with a right spirit. So it is um, it is the spirit that 
like a uh, you know like a like a good border collie you know gathers the sheep together into one place and that's part of what the spirit does we are enlightened so we grow in our faith we grow in our knowledge of god we grow in our appreciation and knowledge of the scriptures how do we do this through the work of the holy spirit he enlightens us. And then, of course, we're sanctified. We grow in holiness, and our desires become more pure, and our desires change, and they become more godly as we grow in faith. You know, all this doesn't happen the day that we're baptized. All this doesn't happen the day that we, you know, make a decision, which I'll get to in a moment. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it is a profound work of the Spirit, and it is not something that we can accomplish on our own, but that is what the Spirit does in our life. So, um, let me say this, a note about one holy Catholic Christian church. Of course, a lot of people don't want to say they believe in a Catholic church because, you know, they think it's Roman Catholic. But, of course, it's a small c Catholic. The word simply means universal or, or general. So I don't have any problem saying that I believe in one holy Catholic church because I do believe that there is only one Christian church. Um, I believe that members of that true holy Catholic church are found within a variety of denominations and congregations all over the world. And I don't think that because you're a member of a denomination or a congregation, I don't believe that that necessarily means that you're part of the Holy Catholic Church. So I think you can be part of one and not the other, but I don't think it's converse. I don't think necessarily just because you're part of a congregation means that you're part of the one true church. You know, um, how do you know you're part of the one true church? Well, because you've heard the Spirit's call, you have been gathered, you you know, into the into the fold of Christ. You're enlightened and you're sanctified. Um, but ultimately, that it's it's a gospel question. You know, uh, do do you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you receive the gospel of Christ? Um, you know, do you accept the lordship of of Jesus Christ? There are a lot of people who are in churches that do not accept the lordship of Jesus Christ, or if, if they do, they do so in name only. I'm uh, not going to be a legalist here, but my, my, my point is that, um, you know, when we talk about the Holy Catholic Church, we're not saying if you're in this denomination, you're part of that church, but if you're not, you know, you're not. So that's not what it's saying. So I don't have any issue using the word Catholic. I don't have any issue, of course, using the word Christian either, but that is an issue that some Christians have. Um, I mentioned earlier then, what, what, what do we do then with the division in the church, you know, as a body? especially among those who, you know, actually profess this creed, but yet are, are divided. How do we deal with that? And part of what I said is that there's got to be something within the creed that would point to the division itself. And I do believe that is the case, and it is on this doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. So, for example, Lutherans and Roman Catholics every Sunday recite the creed. We both are creedal Christians in that regard. And yet we're divided. In fact, we're pretty fundamentally divided and, you know, profoundly divided and obviously historically divided. So what gives? How can we say this creed, which is the bare essentials of the faith, and yet we divide on this? And my own answer to that is is it, it deals with the forgiveness of sins because, you know, and again, this is where I'm, not, you know, I'm creedal, but I'm not merely creedal. I'm not, this isn't, this isn't everything. So it, it points to important doctrines, but sometimes those doctrines do need to be fleshed out. So the mere resuscitation of the words isn't sufficient. We also would look at, in this case, well, what do we mean by the forgiveness of sins? Certainly the point of disagreement between the churches at the time of the Reformation is on this doctrine. It's on the forgiveness of sins. It's on how one is justified before God. And it's on the relationship between grace and works and whether one needs to do good works to be saved or, or not. So 
Uh, when the Roman Catholic Church talks about things like treasuries of merit or indulgences, um, you know, participating in the sacrificial or sacramental system of the church and so forth, we would say that these are, are problems then related to the gospel, therefore related to the forgiveness of sins. So, does the Roman Catholic Church believe in the forgiveness of sins? Yes. Do they understand it rightly from a biblical point of view? As a Lutheran, the only possible answer I can give to that is no, they don't, because they are compromised on the forgiveness of sins because they have added things to the gospel, which Galatians strictly prohibits. Um, does that mean that that there are Roman Catholics within the Roman Catholic Church that you know believe differently, frankly, from their own church body? Yes, I think that there are, and I think that they are in good standing with God. I think that they can say this creed, and they really understand the forgiveness of sins. Um, but the, the Catholic Church, you know, rather famously anathematized uh, Lutherans in 1546 with the Council of Trent. So, you know, that, that, that's a real issue. So how is it, you know, that, that's why I, I would not say that even though I'm creedal and Catholics are creedal, we are one. There, there is a time when you have to look at the, the doctrines within the creed and you have to say, yes, but we say these words, but we mean different things by them. Just as, say, within Mormonism, we say Father, Son, and Spirit, but we mean three different things by, by that. So, um, so if I had to pick one thing within the creed that we would disagree with, say, for example, again, with Roman Catholics, I would say that's it. It's the, it's the nature of forgiveness of sins. It's what we mean by the forgiveness of sins. It's the process of how we are forgiven um, and on what means and so on and so forth. And, and that's why I, I'm not merely creedal. I'm creedal, but, uh, and I think Christians ought to be creedal. I think the creeds are very helpful, but there are other issues that come into play even within the creeds, and, and that would be the, the best example of that because otherwise I, I think we agree on these other doctrines. Now, they might also, by the way, when they say one Catholic, one holy Catholic church, I mean they, they really actually might have a more – um, and I don't mean this in a loaded way, but kind of a more cultic way of, of seeing things. In other words, a more a closed way of seeing things. You know, that they actually do believe they are the one true church, and they believe those without outside of the Roman Catholic Church really are compromised. So, it, you know, they we might also have a disagreement about that uh, article uh, or that section of this article of the creed. But generally speaking, I think the point of division uh, among credo Christians is on the nature of the forgiveness of sins and and what that uh, what that means. Let me say as well then, um, and I've kind of hinted at this already, but Luther's teaching here is really critical to understanding the the role of the Spirit in bringing Christians, bringing the elect to uh, to faith in Christ. And this does run counter then to decision theology, right, which empowers men to come to God on their own more or less. So a lot of Christianity and evangelicalism within America today is really imbued with decision theology. And um, I know in the class uh, I taught on Saturday, I talked a lot about uh, how I went to the Billy Graham Museum when I was on vacation recently in Charlotte. And, you know, Billy Graham's entire ministry was about getting people at these rallies or uh, crusades to make a decision for Christ. The sermons were geared towards it. All the prep work was geared towards it. And then in theory, a lot of those people were to go and, um, you know, all the people who came forward at the rally, you know, were to then go off and to, you know, be connected with a pastor or join a church or whatever, follow through on the decision that they made. Uh, you know, I've heard that the the, the results of those crusades, uh, that a very small percentage of the people that even went forward 
not just who were there, but who went forward and made such a decision for Christ at the end of the crusade. I've heard a very small percentage are, are still active Christians in, in churches today. It just um, so whether or not this you know decision theology uh, is is a good idea, I think is is pretty clear. It's not, it's not. Um, you know, because if what Luther says about the work of the Holy Spirit is right, that we cannot by our own reason or strength come to believe in Jesus Christ, well, you immediately see the problem, right? Um, decision theology can't work because it's not our decision to make. It's God's decision to make for us. And so that's the that's where the, the Spirit plays a very active role in the life um, of the Christian. And as Lutherans, we would say we are not proponents of decision theology. We don't believe that our will is able or capable of making that decision. So um, let me just give in with one kind of final analogy here. It's certainly imperfect, but um, it's kind of helpful in a weird sort of way for me. Um, I like the image of the boomerang, right? You all know what a boomerang is. It's that Australian thing that you throw, and if you do it right, it comes back to you, I guess. But when we talk about the Trinity, when we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, we often divide the the way that we talk about the Trinity in economic terms. That is the functions of each, you know, person of the Godhead, um, kind of the distinct role that they all play, uh, versus the um, ontological nature of the Trinity. So, the the ontological nature of the Trinity refers to the the kind of nature of the being of the Trinity, the way that all three persons are truly God. For example, the economic nature of the Trinity reveals to what the three persons individually and differently do, or separately do, you might say, with within the Godhead. So th- that is important distinction for Christians to make, especially as you study the. If you're a new Christian, you're studying the Scriptures more. If you can keep those distinctions in your mind, it's how you understand that the Trinity is revealed throughout the Scriptures. Otherwise, things can get maybe a little bit confusing, and non-Christian, non Trinitarian groups can can deceive you. But if you can keep that distinction in mind, it's really helpful. So um, so here's how I kind of use that, that boomerang analogy. So the Father is the creator. Okay, he, he, He's at the beginning of the throw, if you will. The Father is um, – he's the creator of all that is. And the Father sends the Son into the world at a point in time, at a fixed point in time in history. And then the Son, I, I believe, sends the uh, Spirit – and uh, you can get into the uh, what's called the filioque clause debate, and just Google that if you want to learn more about that. But um, it's the part of the Nicene Creed that says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, I don't take issue with saying that as the Eastern Orthodox do, because I believe that within John 15 and 16, you you hear Jesus saying, um, you know that that He will be sending the Spirit, um, and I don't think that puts the Spirit in a in a, in a lower role or anything like that. Um, so what it means that the, that the um, you know, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, well, it, it, it's kind of like, what does it mean that the Son is begotten of the Father? Does it mean he's less than the Father? No, but there is, within the Godhead, this is part of the economic distinction between the persons. Um, anyway, so the Father creates, the Father sends the Son, who is eternally begotten of the Father, but still he has sent at a point in history, and the same with the Spirit. The Spirit is eternally existing. He hovers over the waters uh, at creation in Genesis 1. Um, and yet, for the for the uh, institution of the church and to be the, the, the person who now calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies in the life of the church, Jesus sends the Spirit who comes on the day of Pentecost, 
right? Ten days after Jesus' ascension, 50 days after the resurrection, as recorded in Acts 2. Um, now, what is the spirit's role? Well, now the boomerang is coming back, you see. The boomerang, um, or the spirit, rather, is the, the sole work of the spirit is to bring us to a confession of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the boomerang proceeds to come all the way back now because Christ reconciles us to the Father. So that is the sort of ongoing economic work um, that God does again and again and again in the lives of believers and, of course, in the lives of non-believers as he brings them to faith. So um, the Father creates, sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the, the Spirit uh, brings people to confession of Christ, such a confession restores us back to the Father. And so it goes again and again and again. Maybe that's a helpful um, image for you. Um, anyway, well, there you have the Apostles' Creed, a, a, a very um, – oh, you know what? I was going to say one more thing. I was going to say one more thing. Um, this should be obvious um, to, to Christians, but often it's not. It, it's very important when we talk about the Spirit to understand that the Spirit is a person, and the same way that the Father is a person, and the Son is a person. Um, the Spirit of God is not an energy. It's not electricity. Right, the spirit. Uh, the, the the scriptures rather say that the spirit is grieved. Um, well, electricity does not get grieved because uh, the spirit is not the force. It's not some kind of thing floating around out there. The the spirit. In fact, it, it's it's probably best that we don't say the spirit. It's just hard to avoid that in our language. But really, we ought to um, identify spirit by spirit's name, which is Holy Spirit. And uh, when we say the Holy Spirit, we abstract. Uh, spirit and turn spirit into um, kind of a thing rather than a who. And I, I, I just want to say that as a reminder uh, because uh, it, it's easy when we talk about Holy Spirit to, again, abstract Holy Spirit and to um, bring Holy Spirit uh, out of a place of personage, and that's a real problem. Well, that's the creed. Again, um, it, it, it it's not completely comprehensive. I tried to indicate that there are doctrines within the creed that do divide Christians, so even creedal Christians are divided. And so certainly if we're going to work um, towards unity within the body, we would have to deal with those issues. Just saying we're creedal, I, I, I don't think, you know, is is enough um, for full unity. Um, however, uh, understood in a certain light, I do think that the creeds are at least a, a foundation. It's it's a great place to start for looking for the broadest possible unity in the church. So, again, uh, I think it's a little bit better to hear this uh, when I'm recording it live because there's a little bit more interaction and, uh, you know, other than doing it this way. But I appreciate you listening. Take care. God bless. God bless.